0: Welcome to the show, guys. We are here at the Love Life California Conference at Calvary Chapel, Chino Hills. Today is January 29th, 2022. We'll be releasing an incredible series of interviews, uh, some of which you may have already listened to, uh, which we'll release on the podcast here. Um, we have an incredible lineup of speakers at this conference. God is already moving powerfully. We're doing some interviews and conversations throughout the day in the middle of the conference. Uh, but we have Pastor Jack Hibbs, Melissa Odin, Monica Klein, Dr. Anthony Leventino, Justin Reeder, Nick Vujicic, Kirk Cameron, myself. John Amanchukwu, and all men and women dedicated to putting life, liberty, and their responsibility to protect life before their own reputations and comfort. And we have the honor right now to sit down with Dr. Anthony Leventino, a former abortionist who you have probably seen on Fox, you may have seen clips from congressional hearings, you may have seen him at universities with Students for Life speaking tours, as he truly explains um, the horror behind abortion, the horror that has to be sort of clinically cleaned up and defended under euphemisms so that the, it becomes a more sort of palatable, acceptable pill for the American public to swallow. You know, Ephesians 5.11 says, have nothing to do with the fruitless deeds of darkness, but rather expose them. And I would submit to you that abortion is the most hidden injustice in world history. And it's happening now. So Dr. Anthony Leventino, welcome to the show, brother. Thank you, Seth. Uh, it is. A, I was so glad when, when you uh, so eagerly agreed to speak at the conference. Um, and you just struck me immediately as just such a, a humble man of, of faith and uh, of commitment to this cause, which, um, you know, you know how it goes. In, in speaker worlds, you know, it's easy to travel around and pick up nice honorariums. It's sure. easy to expect to be treated and catered to in a certain way. Um, but you, your humility and your commitment uh, and eagerness to serve um, w- was just so encouraging, and so you'll be speaking later. But um, I wanted to just kind of have this conversation with you to bless the people who listen to this podcast and really boil their blood and break their hearts on this issue uh, from someone who's who's been there, yeah. right? I, I, in my opinion, brother, you are the 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 Saul to Paul um, on, on an issue that is it's so silenced and so covered up and so clinically described to keep the reality from really hitting home for Americans. So I just want you to tell your story if you're up for it. You'll be speaking later and and just diving into that horror. Um, But um, tell us your story, brother.
1: I graduated from medical school in 1976, and if you asked me at the time how I felt about the abortion issue, I wouldn't have hesitated for a second to tell you I was pro-choice. This Mm -hmm. was a decision between a woman, her doctor, and no one, including the baby's father, has anything to say about it. Right. You know, a lot of people identify themselves as pro-life or pro-choice, but you know, for a lot of people, it doesn't affect their lives or or, you know, they don't want to get involved. It's too messy. Yeah. Um, but when you're an obstetrician gynecologist and you say you're pro-choice, this isn't some vague political position, you're you've got to decide whether you're going to actually do this or not. Provide the choice. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. um, so right along with learning how to do hysterectomies, deliveries and all the stuff that OBGYNs do, I learned to do abortions. Mm-hmm. Uh, we did first trimester abortions. At the time, there was no medical abortion. It was suction DNCs up to up to 12 or 13 weeks. And it's still the majority of first trimester abortions are done that way. Right. And we did second trimester abortions at the time as saline procedures. These aren't done anymore, but right. suffice it to say that these women had to go through labor, and it would take them anywhere from 8 to 36 hours to deliver their usually dead children.
0: Describe really quick. Uh, doctor, for our listeners, because some of them are much younger and they don't remember what saline infused abortions were. Can you give a quick description?
1: Saline abortion was done in the second trimester, and the way it works is you would do an amniocentesis. You would, well, if they came into the clinic 13 weeks pregnant or later, we would make them wait until they were 16 or 17 weeks. They we actually waited later. Wow. Uh, then you would put a needle into the abdomen as any amniocentesis procedure is and draw out as much of that amniotic fluid as you could. That amniotic fluid is protective and you want as little of that in there as you can get. Wow. Uh, and then you substitute 20% salt solution. Now, this is a very dangerous procedure because if you get 20% salt solution into a blood vessel, the patient will seize uh and the mother w- yes could, could you know her blood pressure would skyrocket she could even stroke so you had to be careful uh that 20 percent salt solution would then burn the baby's body uh ultimately usually almost always but not always kill it yeah. uh well, and we then, have
0: our friend melissa odin speaking yes. later today who my listeners have had she's been on the podcast multiple times and she survived she survived the abortion. procedure yeah.
1: exactly very rare but anyway, um, once the baby dies, prostaglandins are released, the, the mother goes into labor, and then it would take anywhere from 8 to 36 hours for her to deliver her dead son or daughter. Oh uh, it was absolutely gruesome. Even for somebody who was used to doing abortions at that point, this was a pretty gruesome procedure. And people ask all the time, how can you do that? And the answer is, you can get used to anything. I mean anything if you do it often enough.
0: Wow. Uh, It reminds me of the uh, Dostoevsky line from his character, Raskolnikov, who says, the man gets used to everything, the beast. Man gets used to everything, that beast. And we can be beasts of people. Um, Absolutely. You remove the chest, what C.S. Lewis says. uh, That's the abolition of man. You remove the chest, morality, virtue, honor, and you can justify Anything. Anything. So, Doctor, um, where did you go to school, and then when did you begin performing abortions?
1: I went to uh, Albany Medical College in Albany, New York. I graduated in in 1976 and then started my residency in 1977. And it was during my first year of training that I went down to the cafeteria one day and met the young lady that was to become my wife. And wow. The problem, though, was my wife was, see, New York had a, a legalized abortion three years before Roe v.ersus Wade. So you said 77, Doctor? 77 was my first year as an OB resident. Okay.
0: Wow. Did you did you meet, um, uh, gosh, uh, who, who, who converted and, and wrote the- Bernard Nathanson. Did you ever meet him? I have.
1: Okay. I know both because he was
0: performing abortions there, right in the seventies.
1: He was uh, Bernard was in, and I've met his wife Adele, uh, and um, we actually did a couple of things together as, as time went by. After wow. I got involved in pro life, sorry, many I years just later. That, when you said New York, not I was like, oh wow, yeah, not at all. Bernard. And you know, and I and, and you know, I always I, I talk about Bernard occasionally because mm. if you read his autobiography, he says the reason we have abortion is because of us, meaning the yeah. church. Yeah, wow. If and he'd said in his book, if the church had stood up. There would be no abortion,
0: and he went on to produce the silent scream exactly, r- really exposing the horror of abortion publicly, kind of for the first for the first time. But so Albany, and, New York, abo-
1: and, and performed eighty thousand abortions, including on his own and child,
0: his Yeah, and he later said after his conversion that if wombs, that fewer women would have abortions if if wombs had windows. Exactly. So New York, seventy-seven, continue.
1: Well, I met my wife, and uh, it, you know, when she had been faced with this, in as part of her nursing training, you know, uh, we're going to be doing abortions in the hospital, and we want to know if you'll assist. She said, "Absolutely no way." I mean, mm-hmm. she was, she was uh, very pro-life and wanted no part of it, and that yeah. was the end of it as far as she was concerned until we met. Mm-hmm. Well. Obviously, we found out pretty early we were on opposite sides of this issue, and, and we made the dumbest wow. mistake we could ever make in our in our relationship, anybody can make a relationship. Instead of hashing it out, we ignored it. Mm-hmm. And we ignored it for way too long. We got married, wanted to have a family of our own, and found out pretty quickly that we had an infertility problem, she just wasn't getting pregnant. And after an extensive infertility workup and a a very long surgical procedure that was supposed to take an hour and a half and ended up taking three and a half hours, um, the physician came out. I can still see the room and said, look, I I never tell anyone they're not going to have a child, but don't count on it. We were devastated. We both came from big families and we wanted children of our own. So, okay. These are the cards we've been dealt. We'll adopt a child. And of course, anyone right. who's tried to do that knows how difficult that yeah, is. That's right. We called religious agencies, county agencies, state agencies. The, be- the best we could do after months of effort was get on a-, a five-year waiting list to actually get on the waiting list. Oh, my gosh. Uh, and that's when I uh, came up with what my wife, we've been married 44 years. Our anniversary was uh, oh, last, wow. you know, in uh, last month. Congratulations. And uh, Thank Your you. Your
0: wife struck me as just precious when we spoke on the <laughs> phone <laughs> and I was sharing you with you the conference conference after ambassador speakers bureau and we got on the phone i remember you saying uh my wife heard all that and she says i have to go <laughs> <So> <laughs> I, I well you she know she didn't come with you to the conference no. but i was uh you you're god's using you guys as a power couple that's for sure so adoption waiting list
1: yeah um so we um so and and, and anyway but i you know after all this frustration i said this is ridiculous we're getting nowhere in the normal f- channels I know 50 obstetricians on a first name basis, that's just advertise. Right. And that's what we did, you know, hoping we would get lucky. Um, in August of nineteen seventy-eight, I'm performing a procedure in the operating room with one of the attending physicians. The circulating nurse taps me on the shoulder and she's holding up a piece of paper that said, Call Marsha as soon as you're done. Marsha was the head of social services mm-hmm. at the hospital. She's one of the people we talked to. And um <clears throat> it's all the said i knew what it meant and sure enough when i called her she informed me that a 15 year old girl was in labor in the delivery room she had no prenatal care the first time she saw a doctor was the day before but she's healthy the baby look is looking healthy she wants to give her baby up for adoption are you interested of course i was interested i was i remember staring at the face of the telephone to call seal with this news and no i was just seven digits away from becoming a father and literally by the grace of god we were able to adopt a little girl named heather in august of 1978. Well, you know, after all the tears, after all the doubts, uh, after all the struggle, now we have a baby. My wife gets pregnant the very next month, despite all the predictions. And our son Sean was born, you know, only, you uh, know, in July 1979. Uh, Sean and Heather were figuratively and literally close. They were only 10 months apart. <laughs> right, right, right. Anyone who didn't know Heather had been adopted would look at them and go, 10 months? Man, you didn't give your wife much of a break. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. But, hey, I've got the proverbial millionaire's family. Mm-hmm. And, and I always tell people, you know, it was during the time that we were trying to adopt a baby that I had my first doubts about abortion. It was strictly selfish. But here I am trying, I mean, it was ridiculous. I'm yeah. doing abortions during the day, and I'm trying to find a baby to adopt at night. Right. And, and thinking, wouldn't even one of these ladies allow us to take her baby home? But of course, it doesn't work that way.
0: Can you, can you talk more about that, um, Doctor? Can you explain maybe when did you come to sort of the realization of, I guess, the irony? Uh, oh, the irony was perf- obvious right from right. the start. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It really was. Did it Did it hit you even then?
1: It, it It troubled me because, as I said, I was committed to the idea of doing an abortion. You know, you, when you do an abortion, you have to keep inventory. You have to make sure that you get two arms, two legs, and all the pieces. It's harsh, but that's the way it is. Yeah, uh, and. I remember, and you have to literally, and even on the little suction DNCs, you have to pick through the vacuum bag and make sure everything's there. Yeah. And I remember picking through these pieces, and that's when I thought, you know, wouldn't even one of these, here, here's a baby. I'm, I'm looking for a baby there. There's one. Yeah. Uh, but, of course, I just killed him. Um, and, you know, and, and that was, that was as I said, it was selfish, but it, it was the first crack in the wall. Yeah. Um, now we've got a son and a daughter all my doubts about abortion simply evaporated. I went back to business as usual. Um,
0: and it's profitable work, right?
1: Oh, absolutely. Um, you know, I, I used to say even then, I mean, back then we would charge, well, in 1980, we, we had moved, I graduated from the residency program. We moved to west coast of Florida for a year, found out that a young couple with young kids didn't belong in a retirement community and moved back to upstate New York. And I set up practice with a physician that I trained with. Now, Bill and I were practiced abortionists. And... We were not running an abortion clinic. This is regular OB/GYN office, like every woman who's probably listening to this podcast has been to. Mm-hmm. Uh, but you know, we did deliveries, we did hysterectomies, but we did abortions. And at the time, 1981, in the abortion industry, we were looking for a better method of second trimester abortion. The saline's were were mm-hmm. difficult, dangerous, wow. expensive because of the prolonged right. hospital stays, just a nightmare. Yeah. And and we wanted a method of abortion that was where a patient could go to sleep, and when she woke up, it would all be over. And this is when suction D&E abortions were being developed. There, were, As I said, there were over 50 obstetricians in Albany that were willing to do abortions and did them on a regular basis. Wow. But no one would touch this procedure. Dilation and evacuation. Dilation and evacuation. Can I describe one? Please. Imagine that uh, you're an obstetrician gynecologist like me, and imagine that your patient is 17 years old and she's 20 weeks pregnant. A twenty-week baby, if you could see, and it's easy on an ultrasound, you is it's the length of your hand, from the tip of your middle finger to your wrist. That's a 20-week baby, head to rump, not counting the legs. But now she's asleep on an operating room table and you're there to help her with her problem. You walk in scrubbed and gowned, there's your instruments on the table to the right, and the first thing you reach for is a suction catheter. It's a clear plastic tube about this long, and picture yourself putting it up through the cervix into the uh, endometrial cavity, and instruct your circulating nurse to turn on the suction machine. And what you'll see is pale yellow fluid running through through the tubing into the machine. That's the amniotic fluid that was there to protect the baby. If she were only 12 weeks pregnant or less, that would be the width of your hand or smaller, you could pretty much do the entire abortion with that one instrument. Babies this big, they don't fit through catheters that size, right? So you reach for a sofa clamp. Uh, it's 13 inches long, stainless steel, has rows of sharp teeth. It's a grasping instrument. When it gets a hold of something, it does not let go. A D&E procedure the way I used to do them is a blind procedure. Not, you can use ultrasound, but I didn't. It doesn't really add anything to it. Right. It's done by feel. And picture yourself taking this big, long, heavy clamp, put it up through the cervix. be very careful not to perforate the uterus because it's thin and soft. And then just blindly grab a hold of anything you can and pull. And I mean pull hard. And out pops a leg about this big, which you put down on the table next to you. And reach in again, grasp, pull hard. Out comes an arm about the same length, which you put down on the table next to you. And reach in again and again with that instrument and pull out the intestine, the heart and lungs, spine. Oh, Lord. Uh, head on a baby that size is about the size of a plum. Again, you can't see it. Uh, But you're pretty sure you've got it if the instrument's around something and your fingers are spread as far as they will go. You know you did it right if you crush down on the instrument, a white material runs out of the cervix. That was the baby's brains. And now you can pull out skull pieces. Sometimes the little face comes back and stares back at you. Congratulations, you successfully performed a second trimester d abortion. You just affirmed her right to choose. You just made what today would be $2,000 cash in 15 minutes. Whoa. That much, huh? That much. We used to charge $800 for those abortions. But one, you know, just recently I thought, you know, that was 1984. And I ran the numbers. It's $2,200 today. Wow. Good Lord.
0: People who know your story, uh, doctor, know about sort of the major turning point for you. Um, And I I saw you share this story a couple different times, but um, there was one that really floored me several years ago you were on fox i don't remember who it was a woman i don't know if she's pro-life or pro-choice it's hard to say say today with even with fox but yeah you were telling your story and she starts crying on live television i remember and she kind of kind of fumbled over her words and i remember you know some moments stick out in your mind i remember her saying something along the lines of stop stop my, my viewers yeah, Something we, we, like we kind of got cut short. And it was like, whoa. Um, but for those who don't know, um, your, your testimony is so powerful because, I mean, who better to be used by God than those who have been the perpetrators? Well. Um, and uh, that the power of that testimony um, in the redemptive nature of the gospel, but also in, in what it communicates to those still involved in the industry I think is really something that can't be overstated. So um, with the time we have we have left, a few more minutes here, I, I would love for you to, if you feel uh, comfortable doing it, because I know you'll be speaking later and I know this is hard, heavy stuff, but what was the turning point for you? June 23rd,
1: 1984 was a beautiful day in Albany. Heather was exactly two months away from her sixth birthday. Sean was a couple of days away from his fifth birthday. It was a Saturday. It was a beautiful day. I was on call, but it wasn't very busy. Uh, made rounds and got to spend the rest of the day with, the, with my family. We took the kids to an amusement park. We had dinner together. Kids were playing in the backyard. We had friends come over for cake and coffee. And we were speaking with our friends. And at 725 that night, we heard the screech of brakes out in front of the house. We ran out kids had gone out in the road actually sean had gone out in the road and heather was being the little mother and telling him don't go and she was following him into the road and she'd been struck by a car she was a mess you know i'm a doctor i'm supposed to be able to save people's lives Uh, my wife was an intensive care nurse it made no difference she literally died in our arms in the back of an ambulance that night You know, if, if someone listening has have, has children, you may think you have some idea of what that's like. Uh, if you haven't been through this yourself, you have no idea what it's like. I hope you never find yeah, out. I can't imagine. But what do you do after a disaster? I mean, you, you bury your child, take some time off, and you try to get back into your life. And I don't remember how long it was after her death exactly, but I showed up at OR number 9 at Albany Medical Center just like I had over 100 times before for a second trimester D&E abortion. Uh, I wasn't thinking of this as anything special. It was routine, and I had other things on my mind. Right. And I went in there, and I started that abortion, and I ripped out an arm or a leg, and I just stared at it in the clamp, and I got sick. Yeah. But I told you earlier, you know, when you do an abortion, you have you you, you know once you start an abortion, you cannot stop. Uh, if right. If <laughs> you know, once you know you you have to get all the pieces you have to get two arms two legs and all the pieces because if you don't your patient will come back infected bleeding or dead right so i finished that abortion and i know it sounds strange to people but whenever i speak with them and i'll do it today i promise them everything i'm telling them is firsthand and true for the first time in my career i looked i mean i really saw that pile of body parts on the side of the table and i didn't see her wonderful right to choose And I didn't see what a great doctor I was helping her with her problem. And I didn't even see the equivalent of what today would be over $2,000 that I just made in 15 minutes. All I could see was somebody's son or daughter. And it occurred to me in that moment that this patient had come to me, figuratively, never literally, and said, here's $2,000, kill my son or daughter. And I was the kind of person that would, with no compunction at all, look her straight back in the eye and say, sure, I'll do that. And that was the beginning of the end. Yeah, yeah.
0: Um, Melissa Oden uh, told a story uh, on our podcast recently. in um, had an interview in D.C. with a, a young uh, abortion survivor that they connected with, a 10-year-old girl. Wow. That they connected with. Um, and... We, we, I don't know when we'll release this interview, but I think we'll release the interview with Melissa and Jen, abortion survivors, before this one. So our listeners probably already heard the story on the podcast. But um, Well, girl will remain nameless, of course, but uh, the story was they connected with this young 10-year-old who learned that she was an abortion survivor. She was adopted. So all she knows is that my mother tried to kill me. And her response, doctor, to Melissa and the abortion survivors group um, when they met with her was... um, she's not going to come back, is she? And they said, what do you mean? She said, my mom, she's not going to try to finish it, is she? Wow. Ten-year-old girl, abortion survivor, and her first response to learning that she survived an abortion was, I hope my mom doesn't come back. To to do it again. Because she'll try it again. Sure. The reason I tell that story, it sounds tangential, is just to to communicate the point that we sort of know at a self-evident level that the person we are now is the same person we were in the womb. We've just changed. Exactly. We were smaller, less developed, more dependent, but we were still a human being. There's no such thing as a human that's not a person, to quote Roe versus Wade and Dred Scott. There's no such thing as a human that's not a person. And that's why abortion survivors have such trauma, because they're they're resonating with the truth that that was still me in the womb. And, and that's what you're saying, is you're saying this, this is a child, and this could have been my child.
1: I make this point especially to college students. I mean, the kind of presentation I might give to a pregnancy center is not the same I would do at a college. Right. But And I, I remind them, it's so easy to talk about taking away somebody else's life. But I remind them, today you're an adult. Once you were a child, you didn't look anything like you look today. Yeah. Once you were a baby. Once you were this big. But it was always you. That's right. It was always you. Um,
0: that's all the time we have, unfortunately, but, um, we're grateful for your testimony, your story. Uh, thank you for standing, as I like to say, in the middle of the road of the culture of death with the big sign that says, stop.
1: It's the least I can do. How, you know, people often wonder, why do you do this? And it's like, how do you make up for the death of over 1200 children? Mm. You can't, Yeah. but I can do this. Yeah. Yeah. Praise God.
0: Well, thank you, brother. Thanks for joining the show today. We'll we'll be praying for your your session later, and and I believe uh, that we are sowing eternal seeds that will bear fruit in due season, and those will be lives saved and and God's purpose for children fulfilled as they escape um, the forceps that their mother paid a physician to kill them with when. Christians in the church show up and protect life.
1: I appreciate it, brother. Um, I always, I say a little half-jokingly, pray for the doctor, Lord knows he needs it. <laughs> yeah. But you know, and it's something, it's a message my wife always gives when we speak together. It's easy to pray for the mom, it's easy to pray for the doctors, It's or it's easy to pray for the babies. It is not so easy to pray for the doctors. Mm-hmm. It's important that they do that. That's right. That's a good word to end on.
0: Uh, thank you guys for joining the show today. Powerful, um, powerful, somber stuff. Uh, but this is this is the moment. This is the time for the church to stand. 49 years into legalized abortion, over 65 million children at least killed in America alone. Um, we need to stop being tolerant with evil. I think it was Aristotle who said that uh, tolerance and apathy are the last virtues of a dying society. Um, and we need a new birth of freedom and life in this country. So share this episode with your pro-choice friends, yeah? And then take them out to coffee, talk about it. That would be a good conversation. Pray for Dr. Leventino in this conference and the fruit that will be had from it. Uh, we'll see you next week. I'm Seth Gruber, and this is Unaborted.